Welcome to RVR's Life After Camp podcast. Learn about the camp and retreat ministries of RVR at rivervalleyranch.com. Enjoy. So far, do me a favor. If you got if you got a full like eight hours of sleep, like we got out of, you didn't even go to free time. Anybody get like a full eight hours? Yeah, I didn't think so. Oh, goodness. It's going to be a rough morning, guys. Okay. Seven hours. Who got seven hours? Anybody? No? No? Okay. Okay. Kudos, man. Six? All right. Five. Please. Okay. A little better. Four? Three? We're still not even like at a majority of the people. Two? Who only got two hours? Like one hour? Anybody only get one hour? I, I don't know why you shouted zero like that's an accomplishment. Like, that's not, that's not a good thing. Like, I'm concerned for your health. Like, take a nap, man. All right. Well, guys, I'm excited to be digging into the Word together this morning. Uh, kind of to, to wake up a little bit. All right, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's go with the Word wave. Let's see if you guys improved from last night. So instead of going left to right, right to left this time, we're, let's go, we're going to go front to back. We're going to front to back. All right. So I'm counting on you guys. If there's a reason you decided to like rush in here and get front row, so I'm looking for y'all to kind of bring the energy, okay? All right, so word wave, front to back, count of 13. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, go. Even, yeah, even the tech people got, okay, back to front, back to front. Ready? 1, 2, 3, go. All right, nice. I love it. I love it. All right. So, guys, last night, last night, we introduced uh, kind of the story of the Bible through creation and understanding that we have this amazing, awesome, powerful, star-breathing God, and we looked at how massive our universe and the fact that when we look at Psalm 33, and it says that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were formed, and by his breath, all their starry hosts. And he's breathing out stars like Arcturus. When the earth is the size of a golf ball, Arcturus is from here to the ninja barn. And you could fill this room 409 times with golf balls. That's how many earths can fit inside Arcturus. So just seeing this massive, amazing God. And then he gets hands on with creation. He forms man out of the dust. And that same breath that breathes out the stars, he breathes into man. He becomes a living soul. But where we kind of needed to pare things back a little bit and establish a baseline, a starting point, is to kind of take away all the mass, take, take away just all the, the pretending and realize that there are moments where we have all struggled, moments where we've all questioned, moments where we're all wrestling in this moment of just trying to make it to the next day, just surviving. But now we have to understand what it looks like to truly come alive in Christ. But as we seek the Lord, as we try to experience this life and life abundantly, right, in John 10.10 that we looked at, this life and life abundantly that God does not have us here on this earth for mediocrity. All right, now that concept of abundance, it does not mean a ton of fancy things, but is an, an experience of the fullness of God, the fullness of his joy and grace and mercy and love and kindness and goodness to us. 
But in our pursuit of that abundant life, there's something that stands in our way, and that's what we have to dig into this morning. So we're talking about the fall. Now, to best understand the fall of man, I want to take a moment and talk about covenant. And there's actually a theme of covenants throughout all of Scripture. And let's look at this. The definition of a covenant is an agreement, an agreed by lease or deed or other legal contract. But here's the thing that we have to go a little bit further past is when we process the idea of a covenant, or we might think of a contract, we cannot think of this from the idea like an American perspective of a contract. One of the most beautiful representations of God's love, one of the most beautiful representations of God's love for the church is marriage. That one man and one woman would be able to come before God and make a covenant with the Lord in honor of one another. And this beautiful representation of Christ in the church. And guys, if this is your story, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so sorry for you. I'm so sorry that you have not experienced a fullness of God's love between Christ and the church in that earthly example. But the reality is, is that over half of marriages end in divorce because we don't value covenant. And sometimes it's easier to get out of a contract with Verizon than it is to break a marriage. So we have to, we can't look at covenant with the same depth that we would think of as signing up for a phone plan. And it goes much deeper than that. The Hebrew word for covenant, it comes from the word that means obligation. And the root word means to bind, but it also means to eat. Because when two people would go into a covenant with one another, they would perform a sacrifice. Uh, so to kind of best illustrate this, I need, a, uh, I need like a fruit. Or does anybody have like a fruit or a, or a melon or something like okay, that's Why do you have a cantaloupe? That's so weird that you would have that. You just carry around golf balls and cantaloupes? Yeah, it's my favorite fruit. It's not like I gave this to you and asked for you to bring it to me at this exact time in the service. Okay. So, in... <laughs> so, guys, in Scripture... This is a cantaloupe, by the way. They were, if this, these are not the cantaloupes you had this morning. I, don't, I got this the other day at the store. I don't know if this is ripe or not. We're going to find out. But... Genesis, Genesis 15 probably gives the best example of this in Scripture, but in the Old Testament, in, in biblical times, when a covenant would be formed, the two parties, the two people who came together to form a covenant would take an animal, and they would sacrifice it. They would cut it in half. Frankly, I don't think I would ever be invited back again if I cut an animal in half, so I got a cantaloupe. I did look for a watermelon, thinking like, oh, they're red, just like blood would be. And then I was like, mm, that's a little. <laughs> so I went with a cantaloupe. Shing. Okay. Oh, this is sharp knife. <laughs> Not the chair. Not the chair. Don't worry. Okay. Now, I need a, I need a leader. Somebody give me, any, any leader, hop up here. Okay, but my, my, but I, you got to bring two students with you. Okay. What's your name for the crowd, sir? Jake. Jake. What's your name? 
Georgia? Shane. Shane, okay. Georgia, that is for you. I want you to, and, and come stand right, right here. Hold it up, just like this, Simba style. It's the circle of, no, I'm just kidding. All right, take this. Come over here. Okay, you don't actually have to hold it up, just so, just so people can see, okay. And be made very uncomfortable by the seeds in the pit still in the middle. Okay, so what would happen is we would sacrifice our animal, not a cantaloupe, an animal, but pretend it's an animal, or don't if it makes you uncomfortable. But then what would happen is Jake and I, we would make an agreement, is we would walk between these mittens. Mittens, not gloves. Gloves are weird. Mittens. We would walk between the sacrificed animal, and we would recite our commitment to each other. Now, the symbol of walking between these two, this, the two halves of the sacrifice animal is that if we would violate the covenant, that our relationship would become severed in the same way the sacrifice has been severed. And upon making that covenant, that contract, we would then roast and feast on the sacrifice that we used to make that covenant. So guys, go ahead and take a bite of your cantaloupe. Don't, don't do that. I'm just kidding. I, I'm just kidding. Guys, give him a hand. Thank you so much. <laughs> I mean, if you want half a cantaloupe, Georgia, you want, there, there you go, there you go. Wow. Enjoy, enjoy. Save it for after, save it for after. Okay. So guys, that's going to be a mistake. So these two parties would form this covenant by passing between this split sacrifice. And like I said, if either party would violate the covenant, then their relationship would be severed just like that sacrifice in Genesis 15 gives us a good representation of this, where God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Abram, and he has this vision of God passing between these sacrifices that Abraham has laid out. Now, there's two types of covenants we see in Scripture. There's bilateral and there's unilateral covenants. And what that means, a bilateral covenant was conditional, that both parties had to make a commitment to one another. So if Jake and I were entering into a bilateral covenant is we would both pass through the sacrifices. I would have my commitment to him. He would have his commitment to me. A unilateral covenant would be something that I would make on my own. Jake doesn't have to do anything, but I am making a vow. I am making a commitment to him. It is one-sided, so to speak. The reason that we have to understand covenant is because the first covenant we see in scripture is the Edenic covenant, the garden of Eden. And God establishes Adam and Eve in the garden and sets them up to eternally rule. And this is a bilateral contract. This is a bilateral covenant because his standard is of this contract, his standard of this covenant for Adam and Eve is he says, I've placed you here to rule and reign, but the only thing you cannot do is eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Those are my terms. And if you keep my terms, then you will reign in Eden for eternity. You will walk and talk with me in the cool of the day. Now, guys, here's what I love about covenants, okay? You can kind of, little, little nugget, gold nugget over here to place off to the side is that there are a series of covenants throughout the Old Testament, but it ultimately leads to the new covenant in the New Testament. And the beauty of covenants is that God will never break his word. 
And this new covenant that we're talking about, we're going to get into a little bit tonight. So y'all come back now, you hear? But let's keep moving. Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, we see this Edenic covenant. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the ramifications, the consequences of violating this covenant, this contract, Breaking this relationship is a literal, physical death. God is going to limit the number of their days and a spiritual death, eternal separation for God from God. And this violation of the covenant comes in the form of what you and I may know as sin. But what did we look at yesterday? When we just look at things in the English language, we lose something. So I want to look at this. The Hebrew word for sin is kata, and it means to fail or miss the mark. And in Judges 20, it talks about how there was this group of men, and they were from a specific tribe, a specific group of people in the nation of Israel. And in Judges 20:16, it says that these men could sling, like you know, David and Goliath, this, this uh, uh, slingshot, you spin it over your head and whip it. Um, but they could sling a stone at a single hair and not kata, not miss. And then Psalm 19:2, it says, Be careful lest you miss your way, lose your way. So the Hebrew word for sin, kata, comes down to hitting perfection. Hitting perfection, the Greek word for sin is hamartia. And hamartia, Paul kind of breaks this down and takes it to a whole nother level as we process it. See, one of the people I get to work with, she's this incredible woman of God, but she's our children's director at our church. And she'll use this analogy with the kids to say sin is anything we say, think, or do that goes against God. And it's a great illustration for the kids. But sin is so much deeper than that. Sin is so much deeper than that. The interesting part of sin is that it's this all-consuming force that pulls us away from God. Even Paul talks about in Galatians, he says that your flesh and the spirit are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you know you ought to do. That everything in us wants to run in the opposite direction of God. Everything in us wants us to run away from holiness. After the Garden of Eden, one of the first sins we see are Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. And Cain goes and kills his brother Abel. But before that, Cain is warned. God comes to Cain and says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It wants you. Sin is so much more than just doing the wrong thing. But it's that nature within us to go against God. And because we are drawn in this direction, even, even this idea that sin corrupts our own minds. I want you to think about this. How many times have you compared sin? If you've been in church for a while, you might be struggling with pornography. You might be struggling with gossip. You might, might have told a small lie here or there. But what happens is you end up stepping back and going, okay, yeah, I know that that's not good. But I mean... That kid over there, like, he's way worse than I am, so I should be fine. 
even our own minds, the, the fact that we are led to compare sin, to try and reason and rationalize away the things that we do, the things that we do that go against God, that is sin in and of itself. It corrupts us to our very core. Psalm 135, verses 15 through 18, you look at the ramifications of sin. The idols of the nations are silver and gold. The work of human hands, Psalm 135. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all those who trust in them. Now, I want to look at something. Yesterday, we talked about the breath of God. Breathing life into man, he became a living soul. And here's what I love about how God has inspired scripture, given the authors of scripture specific words for specific moments and for, for specific purposes. So when it says here in this verse, it says they have mouths but do not speak, they have eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. The word there for breath is ruach, and it actually means the breath of God. The spirit of God. That there is no spirit in them. There is no living breath in their mouths. So let's look at Genesis 3 together where we kind of have the, the, the curse, the, 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 the ramifications, the consequences of the decision that Adam and Eve made to listen to the serpent that they disobeyed, they violated the covenant and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19, because you have sinned, or because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The violation of this covenant is undoing God's good work. And guys, we have no excuse in this. We have no excuse in this. And I think about how many times have I disobeyed God? How many times my own sin has led me astray? That I've missed the mark. I've missed God's standard. You know, one of the fun parts about having kids... I'm being extremely sarcastic right now, is how they fight. But our oldest is about to turn six, and our middle child, Addie, is about to turn four, and they are starting to fight a lot. And they get in each other's way, and they get on each other's nerves, and my wife and I might be cooking dinner or working on the laundry or in the other room, and we start to hear one of them whimper or cry or get frustrated. And then typically, it's our daughter, Addie, who comes into the room and says, Elliot, hit me. And then we'll, I'll go and I'll grab my son and I'll sit down with him. I said, Elliot, did you hit your sister? He says, yes, but she did this. How many times do we rationalize away our sin? And there are moments when we're convicted, moments when we feel guilty for our sin. And we go, yes, God, but... 
I know that I'm not supposed to gossip and talk about this person behind their back, but they're so mean to me. I know, I know that I'm not supposed to go and look at these things, but I feel like I, I go to church and I read my Bible, so it's okay for me to compromise in these other areas. And we try and reason and rationalize away our own sin. And one of the things I love about Paul, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And he was this incredible, incredibly talented young Pharisee. And he had most of the Old Testament memorized. And it says that he was, he said that as far as the law blameless. Like he was following all the rules. He was so rock solid. And then he was killing Christians. And because of the change that God did in Paul's heart, when we see his writings in the New Testament, he does not pull his punches. Flip over to Romans 8. Romans 8, I want to look at this together. Paul does not pull his punches here, you guys. This is powerful verse, challenging verse. I'm encouraged to hear pages rustling this morning. Glad that you guys brought your Bibles. Thank you. Romans 8, starting verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So guys, what Paul is saying here, he's saying, listen, you have no excuse. We have no excuse. I have no excuse that when we get up in the morning and we come out of our dorms and we see the sun shining, we hear the birds chirping, or when we leave the OTM in the evening and we see the full moon up in the sky, and hopefully we're going to see the stars out this evening, we see the beauty, the majesty of God in creation, we have no excuse to say, oh, I, I didn't know. I didn't realize that there is something greater than me that I have to answer to. You're throwing me for a loop here. Yes, I'm so sorry. Thank you. Romans 1. Oh, I know what I did. I know what I did. Romans 1, verses 18-35. Thank you so much. Um, I think when I was typing this, you guys, I might have, uh, while well, I was going 8-18 or 1-18, jumping around with my, my, my letters. But Romans 1-18, thank you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although, for although they know God, they did not honor 
him as God or give thanks to him. Because they, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy, creeping things. So Paul, like I said, he's not pulling his punches. He's saying, listen, you had the awesomeness, the fullness of creator God at your disposal. And you have abandoned worshiping him for your own ideas. And we have no excuse in this. 1 John 1, verses 8 and verse 10. It says this, If we say we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And guys, I know that it's difficult. See, I wasn't raised in church. I kind of had to find the Lord on my own. But there's this great temptation that once you've been in your Bible a while, once you've been going to church for a while, you start to think, I'm getting pretty good at this. I'm getting pretty good at this. I think I've got this sin thing figured out. And even in that mindset, pride starts to creep in. And John is, is calling out the believers who have kind of been scattered around the region. He says, if you say you have no sin, you are lying to yourself. The truth is not in us. And then he doubles down two verses later. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us. And last night we talked about this definition of life. And we focused in on that final line, continual change preceding death. And that got me thinking, well, if we're talking about coming alive and sin is the thing that is present, preventing us from getting to that abundant life, well, then what is, the, what, what is the thing that we have to fear? What is the thing that we have to worry about? What is it that sin is going to bring about in us? And that is death. So I want to look at this together. This is the, the clinical or the definition of clinical death. It says clinical death is a term that describes the cessation, the stopping of a patient's heart. The stopping of a patient's heart pumping blood through the body and inevitably, it inevitably is paired with a lack of breathing. And a bit earlier we looked at that verse in Psalms that says what? They have no breath in their mouths. And without immediate intervention, the window to reverse the condition will close and legal death will be declared. Guys, sin has brought about death for me and for you, for each and every one of us. But final legal death has not yet arrived. There is something that can still be done. There's something that can still bring breath back into our bodies, life back into us. But one of the things that constantly gets in our way is apathy. I was having a conversation with a pastor at a church in London, and we were talking about 
What is one of the most damaging things to the Christian faith? What is the most threatening things to the church in the United States? And where we landed in this conversation was greed and materialism. Because we don't see the need for a savior. And even though we might struggle in our mental health, even though we might struggle in our relationships, even though we might feel completely crushed by life at times, in our pride, we sit back and think, no, 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 it's fine, I'm fine, I can handle this, I can deal with this, and we're not broken over our sin. This isn't gonna be up on the screen, but if you guys wanna flip there, you can turn to Psalm 38. And I just want you to listen to David's brokenness over his sin. This is King David, the guy that slayed Goliath. And I want you to listen to the brokenness of David's heart as he talks about his sin. Psalm 38, it says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. For I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. Guys, David is completely broken over over his sin. And what that means when it says that he is prostrate before the Lord, it means that he is so unworthy of God that he is down on his face before the Lord. And this pops up a couple of times in scripture where men of God come into the presence of God and they fall on their face before God. I'm not worthy to look on you, God, because you are so holy. And I am just a sinner. I'm utterly bowed down, prostrate all the day I go about mourning for my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. And are our hearts broken over our sin? Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And that word trespasses is pesha or paraptomai. And it means violation of trust. And Paul is saying, you were dead in the broken covenant. You have betrayed our relationship. I've breathed life into you. And you have violated the trust of our relationship through your sin. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." 
Guys, we need to understand that God has life for us. But before we can receive that life, we need to understand that our sin has separated us from God. Our sin is bringing about our own downfall. But the beauty of the gospel, and this is where we're going to go tonight, is Ephesians 2, 4. It says, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then verse 4 starts like this. But God. Because God has an answer for our sin. God has a solution for each and every one of us. So as we go throughout the day, as you go into groups, as we lead towards our time together this evening, I want you to process at a deeper level this question, do I have breath in my lungs? Am I alive? That if death is defined as a lack of breath, and I do not have God in me, And have I ever truly lived, or as we said last night, have I just been surviving, just getting by this entire time? So there's hope for you and for me, and I'm excited to dig into that this evening. But let's pray together, and we're going to close out our time with just a little bit more worship. Father, I praise you and I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you challenge us and even when the truth hurts that my sin has separated me from God that I've violated the covenant I've broken the relationship between us God would you break us over our sin that we would know we are so unworthy of your love for us. But even in our sin, even though we are unworthy of you, you place great worth on us. That even though we rebel, even though we fail, we are still the objects of your affection and your love. And you have so much for us. You have so many incredible things in store for us if we tr choose to truly come alive. So we thank you for this time in the word. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Would you guys stand and let's worship together. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Life After Camp episode. Discover all of the year-round adventures at RVR and find out how you can support our ministry at rivervalleyranch.com. Thanks.